Uh, let, let me pray one more time. Father, as I come to bring the message, Lord, I pray that you would make it less of me and more of you, that you would remove me from this equation, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable and honorable to you. Amen. So we talked last week about discipleship, and we got lots of discipleships and, uh, from, from a few years ago when we uh, did the Journey um, series. And this morning I want to kind of move to a different place, but the same theme. So I want to take you on a little bit of a journey in your mind, if you will. I want, to, I want you to kind of just sit back and picture this setting. It's Passover. And the disciples are headed to the upper room. They're headed there to celebrate the Passover meal, just as they had done all of their lives. This was not new. It was something they'd do. But they would not know what was coming this time. They didn't know this would be their last meal with Jesus. It was just another day, just another ritual, just another tradition to be done as it had always been done, literally, for thousands of years. And in those days, the method of travel was on foot. So everywhere they went, they walked. And in the city, on foot would mean that you would have uh, these street hazards, so to say, uh, that, that you would come across periodically. And uh, there weren't like solid sewer systems and that kind of thing. So when we're talking about dirty feet, we might be talking about a little bit more level of dirty feet than what we m- would normally think about. And since they didn't like sit at a table like we do, they sat at small, about an 18-inch high table, they would recline at the table. Dirty feet at that table meant you're putting those filthy, stinky feet in somebody else's vicinity and in their face, unless they got washed. And this meant that when you entered a home, there was traditionally a servant or a slave whose role was to wash the feet of the guests. On this evening, picture yourself in that upper room, and you watch the events as they're unfolding. You stand with excitement. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard about this rabbi, this miracle worker, this one who has healed people and done all of these amazing things. And now you hear the disciples, and they're talking and laughing as they come up the steps. You hear the voice of Jesus, and, and they're coming into the room. They make their way up the stairs, and they come into the room. And as the first disciple walks in the door, he looks for the foot-washing servant, and he notices that this time there is no servant. Do I wash my own feet? Does he take off his garment and become a servant so that, and wash everyone else's feet? You can see the look in his eyes. He's disgusted that the host didn't provide this basic service for the guests. But instead of becoming the servant, he thinks to himself, not me. I'm a disciple of the great teacher, the rabbi Jesus. I'm not a lowly servant. I'm not a slave. I'm not going to wash other people's feet. So he hurries to the table to get a good spot. He wants to be in the center. He wants to be close to the action. The second disciple comes in, and he too realizes that there's no foot-washing servant. But he also knows that the first disciple didn't wash anybody's feet. So he makes his way into the room. He does the same thing. They all file in. They all go right past the water basin. They go past the the, the towel, and they recline at the table. They make themselves comfortable as they stick their dirty feet in each other's faces. They're probably sitting there going, can you believe we don't have a foot washing servant? I can't believe that they didn't provide that. It's unbelievable. Look Look at my feet. Here, smell mine. 
It's all right, I can. (laughs) Finally, they're all at the table, sitting down. And Jesus gets up from the table. And he walks over to the water basin, and he takes off his outer garment. He looks at the disciples as they sit at the table, waiting to be served. And they stare back at, back at Jesus. And you have to wonder what Jesus was thinking. It's kind of, it's unbelievable. Father, will they ever get it? I've talked to them until I'm blue in the face, and they still don't. Get it. What more do I need to do? Three years of sermon after sermon, illustration after illustration, confrontation after confrontation, miracle after miracle, telling them that serve one another. And not one of them is willing to serve his brothers. Three years. You know, and even more heartbreaking, not one of them was willing to wash Jesus' feet. And after giving each of them a chance to take the role of a servant, Jesus himself picks up the towel, pours water into the basin, and begins the process of kneeling at each of the 12 disciples' feet and washing them. And after washing all of their feet, and by the way, he washed Judas Iscariot's feet, the one who was going to betray him, who was going to be his enemy, he washed his feet. And he returned to the table and he said this. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The call from Jesus to the disciples, the call from Jesus to us, to make it more personal, the call from Jesus to Mike Divine is to become a servant. And if we really were to, if we were really to speak the truth about serving, Many of us are not really thrilled at the prospect of becoming a servant. See, the call from Jesus is not just to serve, but to take the next step to become a servant. The book Celebration of Discipline that we went through during the the journey, Richard Foster wrote this. He said, in some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother, houses and land for the sake of the gospel, than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives us the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. And I know those are tough words. And I know this is not going to be a popular message that is all feel good. Because they fly in the face of what the world says. They step on our toes. You see, when we think about it, there are just 
There are many who just don't like to serve, and there's lots of reasons why we don't like to serve. And I'm one of, you know, there, some of these apply to me. You know, so we think if we're quick to serve, then people will take advantage of us, right? If it, I can't let somebody take advantage of me, I can't tell you how many times. Thanksgiving, that during this season, you go and you take a meal to a family, and I can't tell you how many times someone has come back and they have given one of these three things. They shouldn't get a meal. Did you see that TV he has? They don't deserve this meal. He was smoking. If he can afford cigarettes, then he certainly doesn't deserve grace and mercy and a meal from us, right? Did you see the car in the driveway? He should sell the car, and, and, and then maybe he can get some mercy and some grace from the church. Right? be like Jesus. Sometimes we think if we're serving, where's everybody else? If I'm serving, where's it? Why isn't somebody serving with me? Sometimes we do it for ourselves, right? We serve for the look at me thing. I want you to think more of me, so I serve. We think the work we have to do is beneath us when we go and serve. Sometimes we stand in judgment of the people we're supposed to serve. We just don't, sometimes we just don't have it in us, right? We just don't have that love in us, just not able to do it. Sometimes we just don't want to. I get all of that. Serving comes in all different shapes and sizes. Comes in all different places and times. So John Artberg wrote a book. I think you all went through a John Artberg book in the Sunday school recently. This book's called Life You Always Want, and he spoke about the service that was taking place at home. He spoke about himself and serving at home. He explained that when the baby was crying at night, he would fake being asleep until his wife got up to leave the room, and then he would say a few groggy words, oh, hang on, as if he would have gotten up to go take care of the child. But he's just a heavy sleeper, right? He, a little heavier sleeper than she was. And that way he would get credit for wanting to help and get to sleep. And then he says this. He says, what would happen if he just got out of bed and groggily but joyfully went over to that child and took care of the crying child? What if he was grateful that the child was crying because it was alive? Instead of being resentful, he could be blessed. The heart of the matter is that it's a matter of the heart. Where's our heart? We don't serve for accolades. 
We serve because service opens our hearts to humility. It opens our heart to love, to tenderness. Some of you have been through this, this when a loved one is sick, right? And we don't often consider the toll it takes on us. Instead, we willingly, wantingly, and lovingly begin to care for the loved one. We don't view it as, ser- as a service. We don't view it particularly as being, being a servant. We do it out of love because we love. How will we be known? How is the follower? What is it that the followers of Christ are going to be known by? Love. Lots of times when a parent, uh, you take in a parent or an older child who met up with something, difficult time, illness, whatever it was, taken into your home to care and love them. You're being a servant, but you don't see it as a spiritual discipline. You see it as a natural thing. This is what I do because I love them. You don't think twice about doing it. Sometimes we do serve as an act of obedience, and that's when it is a spiritual discipline. It's an act of obedience to Christ for the purpose of helping ourselves become maybe just a little less arrogant, maybe just a little little less prideful, a little less possessive, a little less envious, a little less resentful, a little less of me and more of him. Amen? Less of me and more of him. That's a spiritual discipline, but it's still being a servant. I'm going to go back to Jesus. This is what he said after washing the disciples' feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, was he talking just about washing their feet? No. Put, that, put, put this in that context. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have been the servant for you, you should be the servant for others, whatever that looks like, wherever that takes you. See, it was unheard of for someone like Jesus, a rabbi like Jesus, to wash some. Uh, no way. Not done. His feet were to be washed. He wasn't supposed to get down and wash their feet. It was newsworthy. It was unconventional. But guess what? Jesus didn't much care about convention. He didn't follow the ways of the law. He honored the law, but he did challenge it because he followed the ways of love. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, all of those who had taken the gift of the word and the law and turned it into, into a rigid book of rules that they beat each other up with and held each other to this. They forgot about love. Jesus came and said, hey, you missed something here. Let me show you what it's supposed to be. Yes, Scripture and the law is important, but if you don't have it love within you, then it is worthless, and you're just beating on each other for no reason. Hey, let me tell you about love, because love does. Love does. Love does. Love is what motivated Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. It's his desire to show his disciples one more time what type of life a true Christ follower, not just a fan, not just a cheerleader, yay, I love you, Jesus, go do whatever you're going to do. I ain't going to do nothing, but I, hey, I'm, you know, good luck, you know, the fan of Jesus. A true Christ follower must lead a life of humility and a life of servanthood and a life 
of love. And it ain't easy. And the gospel that sometimes gets preached out there is not true. It's not easy. It's hard sometimes. You love the unlovable. I've been unlovable. I know what that's like. I've had people love me when I'm unlovable. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples to be servants. They just didn't get it, by the way. They just didn't get it. It wasn't, they didn't even get it this night, right? In Luke 22, 24, after the foot washing and after the dinner, the disciples, you know what the disciples were doing? Were they talking about, man, can you believe that he walked? No, they're saying, who's going to be the greatest? They're talking, they're around the table saying, who's going to be the greatest of us? It, it, it's incredible when you think of it. They just went through this. And, and he's like, be each other's servants. Well, who's going to be better? You know, it's crazy. But that's what they did. They just had one of the most amazing gifts ever given, given to them, and it still didn't compute. And that's why Jesus had to repeat himself so many times, telling us we are to be servants, telling us we are to be humble, be a servant, be humble, serve others, love God, love each other. All the law and the prophets hangs on those two commandments. Go and make disciples. Love people, by the way. That's not beat people into discipleship. Love people into discipleship. And Foster, according to Foster, celebration of discipline is powerful. I hope that you, if you haven't read that or gone through it, I hope you do. Powerful. He said, when we serve, we still have control. We choose. We make the choice about what we will or won't do. We decide who we're going to serve. We decide when we're going to serve. If it fits in our schedule, okay, then I'll serve. If it doesn't fit in my schedule, well, I'm sorry. I can't help you. That's serving. He also challenges us with this. When we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. And when we do this, we find that we have great freedom. If we voluntarily choose to be a servant and even to be taken advantage of, then interestingly enough, we can no longer be manipulated. How are you going to manipulate me? I'm taking advantage. I'm just serving. This thinking is radical. You know, it's an old, it's an old book, but it's radical thinking. If we choose to be a servant and give up the rights, then, nobody can, then, then there's no way anybody can step all over us which is something that in our, in our society we really you know, can't be taken advantage of. You know, I can't let that happen. We become vulnerable. We become available. It's a really radically different mindset. Foster tells us that true service comes from a relationship with Jesus. We serve out of divine urgings. And if that's our core, if we're serving as Jesus did, then it's going to change the way that we serve because then Jesus was in places that we really don't like to go. Amen? Jesus went to those scary places. <laughs> you know, I'll go, let me go to the safe places. I don't want to go to the scary places. That true service finds it almost impossible to distinguish between small and large service. Think in this context. Who's a better servant, a megachurch that sends 5,000 out to do stuff, or us? The same. Wait, but they have more people. Aren't they more important? 
You mean attendance isn't everything? Not anti-megachurch. I think they do good stuff. But you have to hear that places like this are critically important. Every one matters. You know, I, I, th I think that passage where Je it says Jesus would leave the 99 to go find the one says one instead of he would leave the 95 to go find the, find the five. Because every... One is important. And who's to say who's going to have the greater impact? Because God takes... Remember when we talked about having somebody who's mentoring you and somebody that you're mentoring? And if everybody in here had that? In other words, you were mentoring somebody and then they were mentoring somebody and then they were mentoring somebody. Do you see the exponential growth and reach that the gospel has when we just engage with one another, that when we help one another, and each of us, just one. It doesn't even have to be a small group. Be mentoring one. That one life touches one life, touches one life, touches one life. Pretty soon I'm out of, out of fingers, right? Now I'm counting on my toes. <laughs> then I'm out of, out of toes. Twelve disciples changed the world. That's how they did it. God uses us, uses all. True service is contented to be hidden. Doesn't need the lights and accolades. Doesn't need that. We got folks in here, and I can't tell you who they are because they've told me not to tell you, <laughs> who serve in that fashion. They're behind the scenes. That's where they want to be, and that's what they do. True service seeks the approval of God first. Not, not about approval. It's not about approval of one another. Delights in service is indiscriminate in ministry because it seeks to be servant to all. It is a lifestyle that comes from the ingrained patterns of living. It's spontaneous, can listen with tenderness and care and patience before acting. True service builds community, builds relationships, draws together, binds, heals, builds. This is what service can do when we serve, one, when we serve God and serve each other, which is love God, love each other. If you're in love, then you're going to be in service because you want to see people's lives change. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this. He called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so this is, this is what's normal, lording it over. That's what leaders do in this world. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become greatest among you become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus calls us to this life of servanthood. It's a life where we don't exercise the, pos the possible authority that we can have over others. We we practice a term called servant leadership. We, our leadership style is to serve one another. I, I, there's a book I read some years ago called They Smell Like Sheep. <laughs> Great title, right? What it's about is that leadership is not separate from the people of the church. Instead, we're all part of the same body. And because we work together, because we do things together, because we're in it together, we smell the same. Smell like sheep. You a follower of Jesus? He's a good, he's a good shepherd. I'm a sheep. 
smell like sheep. And greatness of greatness becomes radically redefined. And as we seek to ascend to Christ, in all actuality, we're descending into greatness. We seek to serve others. Because if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we have to serve. We have to have a servant mentality. I want to go back to verse 45 because it's very sobering. He makes two very important points in this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be... Read this with me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, first Jesus comes, and he came not to sit on his throne. The King of Kings came not to sit on a throne. He was entitled to that, but he came down to to be with us. He condescended, not condescension. He condescended. He came down, took off the crown, the scepter, whatever it is, and joined the people, lived with the people, and in essence smelled like sheep. He He was one of us. And his example of servanthood is ours. He came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve others. His life a ransom for you and for me. And his death on the cross is the ultimate gift of servanthood from Jesus to us. It's a gift of grace. You know, this series has been on grace. Grace carries this gift that's given to us. It's amazing grace, right? It's amazing what grace can do. And our call is to serve God, not out of guilt, out of joyful obedience to the one who gave his life for us, for you, and for me. And as we serve God, we serve one another. We want others to experience what we have. You've seen this slide a lot. It's the be you for him. Be who you are. You're created to be who you are. But not just for yourself. To be who you are for God's glory. To be who you are for him. And if we can do that, then it's going to transform our lives and transform others' lives. We live this thing together. Jesus gave his life for us so that we might give our life for others. And, and if we'll do this, if we'll live our lives together, it's why I keep pushing, you know, get engaged, get engaged, do some service. Why I want some, you know, you know how many men right now serve in the children's ministry? Zero. What's up with that? Are you capable? Be an assistant. Just hang out with them, you know. Get involved. And by the way, don't wait for the church to set up some program. You know, go hang out with each other. You know, go have dinner. You know, set up your own fellowship group. We're the body of Christ. We, you, me, us together. Don't wait on the church. Well, I wish they'd put something together for me. Well, here's the deal. You have my permission. Go have dinner with each other. Get to know each other. Read the Bible together. Don't wait for me. Please. Right? God's love for you is incredible. Because of that love, he will not shut up. He's going to keep pushing you going to use me sometimes. He's going to use other people in your life. 
because he wants to draw you into a closer relationship with him so that he can use you to draw others into a closer relationship with him so that he can use others to draw them into a closer relationship with him so that he can use others to draw them into a closer relationship with him so that they can know the love that you and I know, the grace that you and I experience. He wants others to have that. It's a gift. What do you do with gifts? Huh? You give them. You share them, right? Jesus has given us the greatest gift ever. Don't we want to share it? Please. I'm begging you. I don't know if I should beg. Should I beg? Whatever. <laughs> Please. Seriously. Live together as followers of Christ. If we'll do that, none of us will be the same. You won't. I won't. And our community won't. 